Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Imperfect people are a universal problem. Did you know that? I mean, most of the time, we do not struggle with the quirks of our fallenness. We get it. Until we start living with one of those imperfect people. Whenever you put two sinners in a box or put two sinners close to each other for an extended period, there will be problems, making it essential to have a game plan for living with an imperfect person. And so what I have for you here are seven tips for your consideration. And I want to weave the life and times of three quirky people that I know into this all-important discussion. And I trust that this will help you as you think about those people that maybe from time to time you succumb to them getting under your skin. Hello, everybody. This is Rick Thomas. We are doing Life Over Coffee. I've titled this Seven Tips for Living with an Imperfect Person, and I'm going to jump right into it. I first want to give a big shout out to uh, Heather. I was talking to her a couple of days ago, and she said, you know, your podcasts are really convicting, and I think that you have you have produced some of them just for me. Well, not really, uh, but I'm appreciative of the Holy Spirit who is bringing conviction into Heather's life, and that is a common theme. Uh, we have two types of people that uh, respond to us. Some are encouraged, others are convicted, and I praise God for his work. And so, Heather, this is not for you unless the Holy Spirit says it is, and if it is, well, let's just praise God for that. Now, I want to give you seven tips, and, and I trust it will help you, especially if you are living with an imperfect person. I remember one time when Biff and Mabel came to our home, and upon entering, and while I was not looking, Biff turned one of my lampshades cockeyed. Biff knew that I would eventually notice and I would readjust the crooked shade. A few, a few moments later, I was talking to Biff, and guess what? I noticed the lampshade over his right shoulder. It was just a little bit cockeyed. And so I excused myself. I went to straighten it, as any normal person would do, because it was crooked. And then I resumed my conversation with Biff. And then Biff started laughing. And I asked him, I said, well, wh why are you laughing? And he said, well, Rick, when I came into the house, I, I tilted that lampshade on purpose. Now, we both laughed, and I did think it was funny. I mean, the truth is, I do notice things. I have always been this way. I observe stuff. It's who I am. God made me observant. He made me literal. He made me detailed. He made me punctual. He made me black and white. That is a blessing. And it is a curse, especially for those who live with me. And the curse part is sometimes I can get get on my friends' nerves. Though, honestly, and this is the truth, my closest friends, they are humble making my my little quirk about straightening things and being detailed it's really a non-issue for them because of their humility biff and others have enjoyed making fun of me through the years it's, you, we all have our quirks 
As I was writing this, I was thinking about our son, particularly when he was younger. He had his quirks, too. I recall asking him to go upstairs and retrieve something from the bedroom. I have chronic back trouble, and many times, if they were around, I would say, hey, would you go and get something from upstairs? This particular time, he bounded up the stairs, and by the time he got to the upper landing, he had forgotten why he was there, and that was our son. He's absolutely adorable, honest, sincere, seems to find no greater joy than serving people. He has always been like that. But sometimes he can be absent-minded. His focus, especially when he was younger, it needed just a little bit of sharpening. Now, I love him dearly, and I believe that he will make a special lady happy someday, but he tends to lose his sense of awareness from time to time. It's not intentional. It's part of his personality. And then there is my adorable wife. It is well known within our small circle of friends that she cannot tell time. Now, I put that in air quotes for those of you who are listening to the podcast. Obviously, she can uh, tell time. We like to say that she lives on island time. I mean, there is a reason that we call her St. Lucia. She is a, a little island down in the Caribbean. When our children were younger, we labeled her as the rocket. We called her the rocket. It was our way of poking fun at her. If she were, were to go into a store and I'm just going to get one item, it could take at least 30 minutes. Though she is nearly omnicompetent, I mean, she could run a small country, she also loses focus regarding time management. And so in all three of these illustrations, lampshade guy, losing focus in short-term memory, or not being able to tell time, this is something that you need to realize. None of those things are sin issues. They are not sin issues. Our son does not willfully forget things so that he can irritate me. My adorable wife is not premeditating about how she can tempt me by losing track of time. And I do not measure and straighten every item in our home to see who I can annoy. We all have at least one thread hanging out of our garments that remind us of our imperfections. Can we adjust a few of our personality peculiarities? Of course we can, and we should. Anyone can change some things, and we can always pray about our quirks. We can ask God to help us change where and when appropriate. We can encourage and assist each other too. But at some point, we must understand how our personalities will be what they are. There's room to change, and there are some areas, well, well, we just will not ever change. There is always a unique way about our fallenness. And so we must distinguish between personality peculiarities and sin, and I want you to make that dis- distinction too. And so as I move along here, I will try to make that distinction. Uh, basically, what I'm dealing with here are our little peculiarity quirks because we all have them. We are imp- 
perfect in some ways. And if we're not careful, those peculiarities can really get under our skin. And that's why I title this Seven Tips for Living with an Imperfect Person. You may want to add seven tips for living with an imperfect person who is not sinning. We must not condone wrong thinking, wrong behaviors. I mean, if it's sinful, it's sinful. But we should embrace and we should leverage our unique qualities. We get into trouble regarding personality differences when we try to change people to be like us. For example, I could arrogantly believe what comes naturally to me should be easy for everyone else. Why can't my family walk into any living room? And notice which lampshades are mm, 16 millimeters off. Now, you have to be pretty ignorant not to see things the way that I see things. And that could be my take on life, but it is not. I mean, if that were my take on life, you could respond and say, well, that you have better things to do than to keep track of lampshade tilts. And I would have to say that you are right. One of the most natural sins to commit is when we impose our view of how secondary issues ought to be for everyone. Our differences should bring glory to God while benefiting each other. When I first met Lucia, I thought, man, we could do more if she were like me. Later, I saw the foolishness of that thinking, and I praise God that my wife is not like me. God made her a particular way, and it has, it has been his kindness to help me to see and to appreciate those differences. I now understand how difficult our life would be if she were a Ricky clone. We don't want that. And so I trust that these helpful pointers will serve you as you grow in your relationship with imperfect people. Now, this will be great, not just in the family, but also in the church as well. These thoughts, by the way, are a collaborative work that Lucia and I came up with as we talked about our own imperfections. And by the grace of God, we try to model these things in our home. And so these are not in order of significance. It's just seven things that I trust will help you. And I will make a distinction between personality quirks and sin issues. Again, those are, those are two different things. All right, so number one, release imperfect friends. Release them to be free. God made your friends a certain way. Part of every Christian's job is to help each other mature into the unique vessels God is shaping them to be. To pick on, to degrade, to criticize, to condemn, to discourage your friend, your family member. It will impede the grace of God in them and your relationship. It will truncate God's work in them if you condemn, criticize, discourage, degrade, or pick on them on their unique personality traits. If you're harsh, unkind, your friend will never be able to realize all that God has prepared for them to be. There is a unique relationship between a couple or between parents and children or between Christian friends. 
Christians are part of the body of Christ. The Lord forms Christ in our spouses, in our children, in our friends. And our job is to cooperate with God by serving our friends in their ongoing progressive sanctification. John Dunn said in Meditation 17, No man is an island of itself. Every man is piece of the continent, a part of the main. And so we want to release our friends to be their unique selves as we cooperate with God because we're all in the body. We're all our part of the main, as John Dunn says. Now, throughout this, I want to give you, I have three question sets under each point. So there's seven points. There's tw- at least 21 questions. And so this is your call to action. Usually at the end, I have a call to action, a few questions for you to reflect upon. Well, I've embedded questions at the end of each point uh, because each point is unique too. And so here is Uh, Here are your questions for uh, release friends to be free. Number one, how are you releasing the imperfect people in your life to realize and experience what God is shaping in them? Number two, do you make them more concerned about your opinion of them or God's opinion of them? You see, when we pick on, degrade, make fun of, mock, or condemn, then we start becoming big in their life. God starts becoming small, and then that will truncate God's work in their life because we are tiring over them where our opinion manipulates them more than God's favorable opinion of them. Do you make them more concerned about your opinion or God's? Number three, are your friends free to... to, uh, I started to say something about lampshades here, but are your friends free to be themselves when you're not around or are they more guarded around you? Now, this was this is what happens when you tower over them and you become the dominant opinion in their room in the room. And so, uh, when they are in the room with you, it just takes all the life and air out of the room because they're so concerned what you think about them because you have mocked or condemned or degraded them so much. And so they they sense a sense of freedom when you are not around, and that is not the vibe that we want to create in our relationship. Relationship. So release them to be who they are. Number two, don't be surprised. Having a full view of the doctrine of sin is essential when building relationally with others. If you don't have a full view of the doctrine of sin, you will be surprised when they sin. And so now I'm talking about sin. And one of the things that you don't want to do is to be surprised whether it is sin that they commit or whether it's their peculiarities of fallenness. You should never be surprised when a person sins. Sinning is one of the things that we are good at doing. The most apparent implication of the gospel is that people uh, that people sin, which is why Christ died. But another implication of the gospel is that people are imperfect even when they're not sinning. You know, if we did not sin... All the planning, all the orchestrating by God to bring his son to earth to die on a Roman cross for sinners would be lunacy. Christ died for sinners. Sinners will sin. If our first instinct is to get mad, to get upset, to get frustrated, disappointed, or critical when a person sins, we have not made it the first space in our understanding of the gospel or relationships. 
Now, again, my point here is dealing with sin, though uh, the overarching point of what I'm talking about here is non-sin-related issues. But this point applies to both. Don't be surprised when fallen people do fallen things, whether it's their peculiarities, their quirks, or whether it is sin, okay? We all have different personalities, and these personalities can tempt us to sin as well. And so it is essential to understand how wrong responses to sin or wrong responses to quirks aren't helpful in relationship building. Question number one for point number two here, don't be surprised. How do you respond when imperfect people sin? Do you expect imperfect people to be perfect all the time? Question number two, are you more focused on what they do wrong or how you can help them become like Christ? Our job is not to complicate what they do wrong by piling onto them when they do wrong. Our job is not to be surprised. We understand why the gospel is here, is for fallen people. And so when fallen people fall, we want to come alongside them and to help them to mature in Christ's likeness. Are you more focused on what they did wrong or how you can help them become more like Christ? Number three, would you talk with them about your perspective of them and how it affects you? I've had this conversation a few times with our family. My responses to you and how I interact to you. I remember one time asking our daughter, one of our daughters, what are you thinking when I respond to your sin? It was a very helpful conversation. It was convicting because I did not respond the right way. I was more surprised and angry than unsurprised and expecting, and then being an encourager, which is point number three. Be an encourager. Point number two, don't be surprised. Point number three, be an encourager. If you are more apt to get bent out of shape when a person does not do something the way that you think they ought to do something, then you will likely create a culture of fear in your relationships. And once that culture develops, it will be tough to make it right. It will make folks guarded, insecure. They may even start second-guessing themselves because they'll be more concerned with what you think or how you might respond. They will decrease. You will increase. If you have a critical spirit, you will exasperate your friends. It's not a good relationship when a person breathes a sigh of relief when you walk out of the room or when you leave the home. I had a relationship like this once upon a time, and whenever I was around this man, it was like, it was like being Muhammad Ali's verbal punching bag. It was a good day if my day did not include him. I had to psych myself up just being around him. In time, I became a completely different person. I lost touch with who I am, who I was supposed to be, what God was making me to be. I lost touch with that because he was so overbearing and so domineering. And and again, I'm not putting all the dysfunction in my life uh, in this person's lap. But I did feel released from prison when that relationship dissolved. 
I am the cause for the decisions and choices that I made. He was a secondary complicating factor, but a significant one. My heart aches for many people, especially spouses who cannot biblically walk away as I did from what must feel like a life sentence. And so are you an encourager? So question number one, are you an encourager? Is this how others would characterize you? Question number two, do your friends mature as they are affected by your relationship with Christ? Is your relationship with Christ so dominating you that it affects others positively? Number three, do you seek to shape your friends into another version of you or into another version of Jesus? Does God become more prominent in their eyes after they spend time with you, or do you become more significant or more prominent in their eyes? Be an encourager, number three. Number four, discern the situation. Read the room. Few things in our marriage have been worth arguing about. Full stop. As Lucia and I were collaborating on this, it's like we were thinking about our arguments, the ones that we could remember, and nearly all of them. There were very few that were really significant. And though neither of us have kept a, a record of wrongs, we agree that most of our disagreements have been over our our peculiar preferences. Rarely do we argue over things that God would deem important enough to discuss at that level of intensity or seriousness. When my wife is late, for example, or she makes me late, St. Saint, Saint Lucia, island time, the truth is typically I'm more concerned with my reputation than whatever she may be doing, whatever's going on in her life, or why she was late. If our kids were not making a suitable grade or performing according to my preferences, again, the temptation is to think more about how it reflects upon me. And when I do that, I'm going to respond to her poorly for being late. I'm going to respond to them poorly because of the grades that they brought home. If I'm not careful, if I'm not regularly repenting, well, then it will become it, it, it becomes how others perceive me than, than what is vi- vital to God. And so others will be thinking more about me and my opinion uh, rather than thinking more about God. And I've shifted the trajectory of their sanctification to where I am more controlling in their lives than God. I can quickly lose track of God's perspective. As my discernment meter shuts down because I have made a mountain out of a molehill. Read the room. Discern the situation. Determine what is really critical. Question number one, how many crucial things have you fought over, and let's just say recently, with your spouse? The follow-up is, how often do you view the situation from God's perspective versus yours. Number two, how often does your reputation interfere with how you read the room, with how you discern the situation where you're thinking more about yourself or thinking more about others may perceive you because of this situation that has just happened? Number three, 
Are you being intellectually honest when you hold firm to, to your convictions? Sometimes we, we play the spiritual card, in this case, the conviction card. This is a conviction. Well, really? I mean, it may be, but are they really convictions? Number five, be humble and confess. We all have messed up somehow. The only way that we can fix what we have messed up is by humbly confessing those sins and seeking forgiveness from the ones that you have hurt, assuming that that we have sinned against them. Now, if they do something quirky and then we just go off and sin against them, we have to be humble. We have to confess it. If we do not own our sins... There is no possible way to rectify the situation. Now, maybe they sin too. Maybe in this case, you sinned in response to their sin instead of their peculiarity. Well, in either case, you still have to clean up your mess. The hard part is how our unwillingness to own our mistakes speaks to our most potent and core sin issues, and there's two of them, self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. Self-righteous, the self-righteous person has a greater than attitude. It's an air of superiority. It's the exaltation of oneself over others. And so when they do something wrong and we respond sinfully to them, we are exalted over them, looking down on them, and that self-righteousness will sabotage that relationship. Where does self-sufficiency come in? We are relying on ourselves, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. We are relying on ourselves rather than trusting God in this situation. Whenever I sin, I try to if I justify my actions, then my argument has holes in it. And if I continue to justify my arguments, continue to press my case, I'm just going to dig a deeper hole. And the people that I'm trying to convince will relationally distance themselves from me. Point number five, that we must confess and seek forgiveness. Number one, are you quicker to confess your sins or are you quicker to identify someone else's problem? What is the most common theme in your home? Confession? or correction? Are you more apt to be, you're the correcting person, but not the confessing person? Or are you more apt to confess more than correct? Number two, which of these two does your spouse receive the most from you? Your confession or your correction? Now, it would be better to ask your spouse that question. It would be better to ask your children that question as well. Number three, if you correct more than you confess, would you be willing to dismantle your self-sufficiency and and trust God in this matter and start by finding help? Now, if that's that's a path you want to go down, which I highly recommend, uh, if you correct more than you confess, then I, I would appeal to you to write out a repentance plan and to share that repentance plan with your spouse or with a close friend. Number six, live within the community. I had a friend who tried to get rid of a particular sin issue, and after he experienced a season of success, he would confess it to his wife after he had a long season of, conf- uh, of success. He did not want to confess this until he had overcome it so that he could talk about it as a past thing rather than a present thing. So he waited for a season of success, and then uh, he listened to my appeal, and he brought it up to his wife. Well, guess what? He lived a cyclic life. 
and his marriage rode the roller coaster with him. I appealed to him for nearly a year to share his struggle with his wife, and he finally did, owning it, that, that the season of success had, had gone away, and now he's back in it again, but at that point, he decided he would just confess it rather than wait for another season of success. They're on the road to mending the brokenness in their marriage, and he is doing this in a community, a Christ-like, caring community. Now, I am well aware that most of the people who interact with our ministry do not have the kind of community that can serve them in their struggles. Someone just wrote in. One of our supporting members wrote in, actually as a mastermind student as well, just wrote in today on the forum, said, well, I have this situation that I'm dealing with, and they're not in. In fact, two people wrote in today on the forum, two different situations, and both of them said their church is not getting involved in, this, in these two situations. One of the reasons that our ministry exists is because of a, a breakdown in some, not all, some local churches. It's not unusual for a person to come to us asking that their church not know anything about their situation. Now, this is the other side of the coin. Some churches are not intentionally intrusive. They're not proactive. They're not engaging the people. And then on the other side, there are some people who do not want their church folks to know what is going on. Kind of like the gentleman that I'm describing here. He wanted a season of success before his wife found out. These church members want a season of success, and then they will talk in the past tense how I used to struggle this way. It saddens me how the relationship between them and their local body, honestly, it is divisive and it is secretive. A healthy body has a healthy immune system analogous to the body of Christ. Paul wrote mostly for local churches. He urged church people to do effective one anothering. Point number six, living in community. Question one, do you belong to a small group? The follow-up is, does your small group really, really know you? Question two, do they know the things about you, but you withhold the real you from them? Question three, will you trust God with your life by being more humble and revealing appropriately to those who love you? Finally, number seven, again, seven tips for living with an imperfect person. Number seven, remember the gospel. Some people say, and I, I remember a pastor telling me this one time, he said, Ricky, you're, you're just Johnny One Note. And I guess I unashamedly am the gospel not only defines my starting point, but it sets my trajectory as well as my ending point. For me, all of life is about the gospel, the person and work of Christ. If our life is not about the gospel, the person and work of Christ, it is a waste, and we will tragically miss the point of life. While there are many implications of the gospel, there is one significant implication we need to gain for the points that I'm making here, and that is, I am a bigger sinner than any person that I know. Paul said it this way, I am the chief or the foremost sinner. If this truth rivets your soul, 
It will radically alter your relationships. You'll not be towering over people, self-righteously judging them and self-sufficiently manhandling them. Remember the gospel point number seven. Question number one, do you spend more time speck fishing than examining the log in your eye? Number two, what is the most prominent, who is the most prominent sinner in your life? Again, Paul said in Timothy 1.15 that he was the foremost. I trust you have that view about yourself. Number three, what is the main point of your relationship to serve them? or for them to serve you. The gospel came, and he said in Mark 10, 45, that I'm not here to be served. I am here to serve others. Seven tips for living with an imperfect person. Just by chance, you live with an imperfect person. I, I trust that these, uh, these tips will be helpful to you. If you are married, I hope that you will walk through all the questions that I've asked you with your spouse, with a close friend, uh, with your children would be an added bonus. Again, the, this is the call to action, is to go back through those 21 questions that I have asked you and work through them. Uh, you can read, you can watch, you can listen to this resource on our website, lifeovercoffee.com. Seven tips for living with an imperfect person. For those of you who want to do a deeper dive in all things discipleship, learning how to do the work of being a disciple maker, I would encourage you to check out our mastermind program. You, there's a free LMS. It's a learning management system that walks you through the steps of what our program is about. It is all online, so if you have access to the internet, you can you can do it at your lunch break at work. You can do it at home. You can do it at a coffee shop. You can do it anywhere you wish as long as you have access to the internet. Take a look at the introduction material that explains our mastermind program at Life overcoffee.com. If that is something that interests you, then you could start today after you go through this explanation of the Mastermind program. If you have more questions, then just hit the uh, contact us button. I think it says get in touch with us in the footer of the website, and you can ask any additional questions after you go through that LMS. Seven tips for living with an imperfect person. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.